Hey, we're in week three of our series, Bible Basics. And what we're doing in this series is really helping you have confidence in God's Word. I hope that you've enjoyed it so far. We've been looking at a number of different things. And uh, with this series, uh, I, I want you to, to realize that the truth is, from the beginning of creation until now, there's always been an attempt to undermine what God has said. You look at this, this was Satan's first strategy in the Garden of Eden, was to question the Word of God. If you know the story, it's in Genesis 3, and he says, did God really say? Well, if that was his first strategy, we shouldn't be surprised when we still see attacks or assaults or attempts to undermine the reliability of Scripture. So that's why I'm doing this series. I want you to know that God's Word is reliable, that it is true, that it is trustworthy. I want you to have confidence in its accuracy, in its authenticity, in its authority. And I set this up, it's important if maybe this is your first time in, in doing this, I'm not trying to convince the skeptic. If I was, I would do this series differently. I'm trying to strengthen the Christian. If you're here, you place your faith in Jesus, you have some amount of confidence in God's word, I, I want it to be stronger. Not just to know what you believe, but to know why you believe what you believe. I mentioned this last week, you don't have to be a theologian. You just gotta know the basics. So that's what we're doing with Bible basics. And I've just found that a lot of us, when it comes to the Bible, a lot of us, we desire the promises but we're quick to dismiss the principles. Here's, here's what I mean. Like, I like that part in the Bible that says, where God said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the part I want to, you know, keep close to me. But that, that other part that says, bless those who curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you. You know, I like to kind of forget that part once in a while. I, I like the part that talks about my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory. I, I like the part that says God works all things together for the good of those who love him. I like those promises. But the principles, where God talks about human sexuality, where God talks about marriage, where he talks about gender, any other number of things, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want to adopt that into my life. Here's what you got to know. When you reject some of the authority, you reject all of the authority. You can't just pick and choose what you want. I said this the first week, that if you believe the things you like about the Bible and reject the things you don't like, it's not the Bible that you believe, it's yourself. So this is some of the stuff that we're looking at. Because if there isn't an objective authority behind this, then none of what we're doing matters. If we can't have confidence in this, then what we're doing doesn't matter. So we talked about the first week, just some basic principles, how this is not written to you, it's written for you. And in everything that we're looking at, we said that it doesn't matter if you know what's in the Bible as much as is the Bible in you. This is not just a book of information. It's not just a book of moral principles. This is a book to change your life, 
It's God's revelation to us, to humanity. And last week, we looked at the inerrancy of Scripture primarily, talked about how it's inspired, infallible, and authoritative. And I've been doing my best to touch on some of the difficulties that we encounter with Scripture. I just want to say it's not the purpose of the series to really try and give you an answer for every difficulty that you have or every doubt that you might have. But what I really want to do is provide a framework for you to be able to work through them and approach them honestly. Doubts are not evil. Doubts are not always bad. I just want to tell you, if you have some doubts, you don't need to feel like you failed God. If you're here and you've got some doubts about Scripture, I'm glad you're here. This is the place to work through those. In fact, I'll just tell you, I mean, I'm to, to put you down, but some of the questions you have about Scripture, you're not the first person to have that question. There are people who are smarter than you, no offense, who have worked through a lot of these challenges, and you can look at what they've said and begin to get some understanding for yourself. In fact, I would just tell you, you know, I might not be able to meet with you personally, but we have other pastors here. We have a number of former pastors that attend here. And if you have some stuff that you're looking to work through, I'd love to connect you with somebody to help you work through some of your doubts. But the question that we're really dealing with is, can I trust the Bible? Can I trust the Bible? And what I want you to see is that through this series that you can. In a world full of opinions, we find our truth in God's Word. We anchor our lives in its authority. To be a Christian is to recognize that the Bible is authoritative. It is the supernatural revelation of God himself, and it's God's gift to those who love him and seek to serve him. The Bible, it shows us God's design for creation. It shows us how to live and experience God's best. And it's one thing to say that, but I would not be pastoring you well if I didn't address the tensions, if I didn't address some of the conflicts, if I didn't address some of the challenges that many of us run into when we try to read Scripture or live by Scripture. And there are some tensions. Some of the tensions are because of how we are culturally conditioned. Well, we're culturally conditioned to accept that, hey, all truth is relative. You've got yours, I've got mine, and that's good for you, this is good for me. Now, if you really thought about this critically, you'd know that that statement doesn't even make sense. But that's a common belief in our culture. But we're conditioned to think that, you know, all opinions are equally valid. I don't know. I'm a parent. My child's opinion is not always valid. I'll just tell you that. <laughs> we're, we're conditioned by some tension of culture, and, and sometimes there's tensions because we read things that go against our modern sensibilities. I'll just be honest with you. Like, if you, if you don't ever have any, like, man, that seems challenging to me when you read the Bible or it doesn't pique your curiosity, to me, it tells me you, you've probably never read it deeply. Because there, there's things in there, it's like you read something and it's like, 
why was it so bloody in the Old Testament? You know, you see Joshua, and he goes to conquer these different places, and you see things like, you know, destroy all of them. It's like, is that really what it said? Well, let me just talk about that for a moment. I don't want to go down the stitch, but, you know, when it says that, I mentioned this last week, the Bible does use metaphor. I was, I was at a basketball game yesterday. It was a massacre. <laughs> but it doesn't mean that they were physically mutilated. Okay, we understand when we say the word massacre or they were destroyed, what that means. It means it was, it was pretty bad. It was, it was really bad. Just, I'm not going to tell you the story was bad. <laughs> okay. So you have to understand things like that in, in, in Scripture. Even, even with that one, you see like with the Amalekites, they, they came back. It wasn't, it wasn't a genocide. Like that would be something that, that people say. That's, not a, that's a misrepresentation of Scripture. But there, there's things where the Bible, it conflicts with our experience sometimes. In fact, that's the biggest thing I've found 11 years of doing this is that the reason people reject Scripture has less to do with what it says and more to do with what they expect and what they experience. This is just something you have to understand. I'll spend more time talking about this in the coming months, but you just cannot let a tragedy change your theology. When what I experience doesn't line up with Scripture, I'm going to be loyal to Scripture. I'm going to make the assumption that my interpretation of Scripture was wrong, but I'm going to be loyal to Scripture. So what I want to show you today is really, it's a, it's a framework to help make sense of some of those things that don't make sense. And when you read something in Scripture that you don't understand, I want you to remember this phrase, consider the covenant. Consider the covenant. That's the title of my message today. Consider the covenant. Now, it's my custom to always begin by reading Scripture. I want to read two Scriptures to you. I'm reading from, this is the Bible I brought today. This is, um, it's not the Velocity Translation, but it is the Velocity Bible. Um, we didn't write this, but it's the NIV translation. And uh, this is the Bible that we give out uh, whenever somebody makes a decision to trust in Christ. We give out those fresh start kits, and inside that fresh start kit is this Bible along with some other things. And so uh, this is the Bible I'm going to read from. And if you are placing your faith in Jesus for the first time today, you can ab absolutely meet us over there in the corner and grab one of these. But I'm going to read from, uh, first, I want to read from Psalm 105. Starting in verse 8, this is what it says. Speaking about God, he remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations. Now, we're talking about Scripture, so I want to read another verse from uh, Psalms. This is in Psalm 19, verse 7. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and in keeping them, there's great reward. I, I mentioned a minute earlier, you know, Marissa watching uh, like Beach Hunters or whatever it's called, but I've been, I have to make a confession. I've been 
uh, planning a beach vacation for us. The reason is our 20th anniversary is coming up this year, and I figure if you're going to you know, go all out for the 20th, you got to get started in January. Maybe it's the cold weather. I don't know, but I've been thinking about warm things. It's our 20th anniversary, though, coming up this year in, in August, and in uh, just planning all that out, I've been reflecting on what it was like to get married. Um, anybody married in here? A few people married? Yeah? So a lot of single people, apparently. Um, anybody engaged right now? Is anybody engaged? A couple of people? Oh, congratulations. You know, I'm, I'm going to talk to you the rest of the sermon. Um, anybody looking to get engaged? We can see if we can make that happen. Um, no, but like, yeah, in, in, when you're engaged, like, I'm just thinking about the wedding. There's a lot of stuff that goes in to the wedding, all the planning. I've done a number, you know, I'm a pastor, I do a number of weddings. I've learned there's really two kinds of brides. There's, there's the, the brides that they've got everything planned out to the last detail. Is that you? You got everything planned out to the last detail? Then you're the other one. The other kind of bride is just like, they've just got the dress and let somebody else take care of the rest. And uh, it, it's funny though, all the different events that are in a wedding, you know, as different as so many of them are, there's always some key elements, you know, there's the ceremony, of course, and um, there's usually some, some words, some vows that are said. There's usually some kind of uh, symbol to, to solemnize, memorialize the wedding. There's, you know, exchanging of rings or the, the unity candle or sand. There's different things that are, are done. But as I was preparing this message, consider the covenant, I realized, you know, a wedding and a marriage is a picture of a covenant. Like in my marriage with Marissa, going back to that day, remembering all the feelings and planning out, you know, all the stuff we want to do. I've got to be honest with you, there's sometimes, I remember what it's like to, to feel that in the moment, but there's some, some times where, um, like, I don't always possess those same feelings um, that I had when we were married. Don't judge me. <laughs> I'm just being honest. This is not therapy. I'm just trying to help you. The, I'm, I'm saying that the feelings are not the covenant. Like, our marriage isn't based off how we feel in that moment. Our marriage is based off the commitment that we made. The commitment that we made. And that's so important for you to understand because you're going to read things in Scripture and sometimes what you experience might not be what you expect, but we understand Scripture through this idea of covenant. Here's why it matters. Covenant helps us understand that the Bible is not just a random collection of laws, moral principles, of maxims. Covenant is how we understand Scripture. The Bible tells the story of God's covenant. It's a story that goes somewhere. Starts in Genesis, goes all the way through the arc of redemption to Revelation. And the story unfolds and advances through different covenants that God makes with his people. Now, I get covenant's not a word that we use every day in our modern language. We might hear it sometimes like a HOA has a covenant, but we might think of it with marriage. But, but covenant would have been an everyday word in ancient times. Covenant really would have, we would have, they would have used the same way we use contract. It, it was 
that common. Now, it was more than a contract because it invoked and involved a personal relationship. This wasn't just a definition of terms. It really represented two people coming together for a common cause and goal. That's why marriage is such a great picture. But within covenant, what, what you have is, you know, you, you have these definition of terms. You would have uh, the, the expectations of the relationship. And it was always accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies in ancient times. Many times it was accompanied by blood. I want you to keep that in mind, this picture of marriage being a covenant, on how we understand covenant in the Bible, and then go to what Jesus said in Luke chapter 22, verse 20. Jesus, when he was observing Passover with his disciples, he said this, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Sometimes we read that and we just think like, oh, he was making a promise or he was just kind of saying, like going through some kind of tradition. I want you to understand the same way we approach a wedding with all of the details and all of the planning and everything involved, Jesus, he makes this declaration. This is the vow. He goes through the ceremony, going towards the cross. That's the altar. And he sheds his blood. It's a picture of covenant. Here's what I want you to see with that. It's that God hasn't just made us a promise. He's made us a partnership. Like, when I married Marissa, I didn't just say, hey, I'm going to do this, you do that, and this is my agreement with you. No, this is a partnership. We're in this together. We've got the same goals. We, we, we've got uh, expectations of each other, yes, but we've got the same priorities. Are there promises? Yes, there are. Are there principles and precepts? 100%. But this is also a partnership. When you enter into a relationship with Jesus, it's a partnership. You have a covenant relationship with him, an agreement. And this book is a written record of what God has said he would do and the expectations that he has for you. So covenants are found all throughout Scripture. And I won't go through all of them, but like in the Bible, you see covenants between people. You see this with Jonathan and David. They're kind of uh, famous people in Scripture. You can read about them in the book of 2 Samuel. You can read about that. Uh, you see covenants made between nations. They're political covenants where they said, hey, we're going to go to war together or we're going to have have peace, or your enemy is going to be my enemies, or you're going to protect us if somebody attacks us. It's a, you know, a, a political covenant. There's legal covenants with a nation. You see that in scripture. All these different covenants. A covenant was just a, a natural and major part of what it was to be alive in ancient times. But the fact that Jesus said, this is the new covenant, implies that there is an Old Covenant. And since we're talking about Bible basics, this is one of the fundamental things you have to understand, is that when we talk about Scripture, there is the New Covenant and there is the Old Covenant. 
So we call it the New Testament, right? And the Old Testament. That's kind of a simple way to define and delineate Scripture. Now, the truth is, there are way more covenants in the Old Testament than just one covenant. And the reason this is helpful to understand is because many times we read things in Scripture, what's the deal with all these dietary laws? Why don't we follow that today? We read things in Scripture and like, what is the deal with circumcision? The Bible seems to really focus a lot on that. Why don't I see that mentioned so much? All these different covenants, and if you just kind of, it's just kind of a lazy way to say, oh, well, that's old covenant, this is new covenant, you can do that. But it's helpful to understand and interpret Scripture to recognize there's a different covenant. So in other words, when it comes to understanding Scripture, we already know there's a chronological gap. It's written at a different time than the time in which we live. We already know that there's a cultural gap. It's written in, you know, the Middle East, we're in the West. So there's cultural things. But sometimes what we don't realize is that there is a covenant gap. Why do I see things in, in one part of the Bible and I don't see it in the other? And I said this last week. It's just kind of expounded that. I said, if, if you dismiss parts of the Bible because they're no longer culturally relevant, that's a heresy. It's a false teaching. But we can clearly see there's parts of the Bible that we don't observe anymore. Why is that? It's not because it's not cultural. It's because it's a different covenant. So, put it to you this way. We don't understand the scripture from the focal point of our culture, but from the framework of its covenant. That's how we understand and interpret scripture. Now, I don't want to um, go through all the different covenants. There's you know, multiple ones we could look at, but th there's really five key ones that we should understand, and I'm going to go through these super fast. I'm going to put it on the screen, and I'm just going to tell you to take a picture of it and look these up on your own. So let's look at some of the different covenants. There's the Nehoic covenant in Genesis 9. Okay, this is where after God floods the world, he makes a covenant with Noah, and he says, I will never do this again. What is so important about this covenant? Well, for one thing, it's where God reaffirms and renews his covenant with mankind, creation. It's also an unconditional covenant because he says, this is not dependent on you. This is not based off your ability to do the right things. I'm making this covenant with you. I will not do this again. It's an unconditional covenant. So the Abrahamic covenant, this one uh, we see where God makes a covenant with Abraham. You can read in Genesis 12 and 15. What does this show us? This shows us the faithfulness of God. He makes a promise that he would make him a great nation, that there was going to be a land for him. Well, if you know the story, 400 years and the Israelites go and they're taken into captivity by the Egyptians, it shows that God is still faithful. He honors his word. There's the Mosaic Covenant. This is maybe what we're most familiar with. It shows the blessings of obedience. It's where God gives the law and he gives it at Mount Sinai. It's in Exodus and you can read about that. And then the Davidic covenant, that's important because it shows us the promise of the Messiah. Now, what's the point of, of looking at all that? All of that is a picture leading up to that moment where Jesus says, this is the new covenant that I'm making with you. 
All of those things that, that we, we see about there, where we read through it, it could never fulfill. It always fell short because we couldn't keep the law. In our best efforts, we weren't able to live up to God's standard. So God says, I'm going to make a new way. I'm going to send my son in human flesh. He's going to do what you couldn't do. He's going to fulfill the law, and we're going to make a new covenant so that you're made in right standing with my blood. This was actually prophesied about in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, we see a picture of this. It says, the days are coming, announces the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel. I will also make it with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with the people of long ago. That was when I took them by the hand and I led them out of Egypt, but they broke my covenant. They did it even though I was like a husband to them. Again, remember, it's a partnership. Not just this is a contract we're going to make, and as long as you do this, we're good. No, by accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, by accepting what he's done, it's not just a promise. It's not just principles. He's bringing you into partnership with his plan and purpose for your life. It says, they did it even though I was like a husband to them, announces the Lord. This is the covenant that I'll make with Israel. After that time, announces the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And on the night of Jesus' last supper, Jesus takes the cup and declares that his death, burial, and resurrection is the inauguration of this covenant. Now, the challenges arise for most of us when we read scriptures like, okay, I get it. There's a new covenant. So does that mean we just throw away all the Old Testament? Well, no, we can't do that. We know, we've looked at this verse every week, 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So everything in scripture, both the Old Testament and the New, is useful. We may not follow some of the ceremonial laws, that were given in the Mosaic Covenant. We might not follow some of the civil laws that were given under the Mosaic Covenant. We may not follow some of these different things, but it's still useful for teaching, for correction, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. So here's what I want to do that would be helpful. A lot of people think, so what is it that I, how do I know what's still good and how do I know what still isn't? Well, it's interesting to know that this was the very question that the early Christians asked. If you know the story of Scripture, the Holy Spirit was poured out in Pentecost. Peter preaches. All these uh, people from surrounding nations place their faith in Jesus. Paul takes the gospel to the Gentiles. And uh, through this, there's, there's all these people who were non-Jews being saved. And the question came up, what are they supposed to follow, and what are they not supposed to follow? In fact, you get a real clear picture of this. The, the first instance we see is in Acts 10, maybe just write this down, where Peter preaches to the Gentiles, and he has a vision. In this vision, it's in Acts 10, verse, verse 9, he says, he became hungry, he wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open. And something like a large sheet was being let down by its four corners. It contained all 
kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. He said, surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. That was part of the Mosaic covenant. But the voice spoke to him a second time. He says, don't call anything impure that God made clean. So here you have a, a clear picture of God saying, hey, the Mosaic law, that covenant, that's, that's not what we're, we're following here. Don't call anything impure which God has, all, has made clean. From this point, he preached the gospel to the Gentiles, and they became saved. So as these Gentiles are getting saved, the question came, what should they follow? What we see in, maybe just write this down, Acts 15, this is what they said. He said, it's my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So basically, there were two key things they were talking about. As these Gentiles are being saved, they're saying, hey, let's make sure that there are no cultural practices that are an affront to God's holiness. And second, let's make sure we observe the laws around sexual, sexual morality that are given in Scripture. Those are the two primary things. And so you're like, okay, great. I get it. There's a lot of covenants in Scripture. What's the point? Why are you telling us all this? Because covenants give us confidence. This is what you need to remember. Covenants give us confidence. I'm going to read one more scripture to you in Hebrews 10. The writer of Hebrews says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings. Having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from the guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Let's not consider, let, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Why do covenants matter? Well, it's how we understand scripture, but also gives us confidence that you don't relate to God based off of your goodness. You don't relate to God based off of your ability to be sinless. That you, you don't relate to God based off of your ability to have the Bible memorized. You, you don't relate to God based off of how many times you read the Bible or you come to church. You relate to God through the sacrifice of his son. Covenants give us confidence. If you don't understand that, it's hard to understand the other things that God has for us in Scripture.